Last week, I had the wonderful opportunity to give a reading along with a few other fellow workshop poets and graduates for the Young Writers Studio, which is the Iowa Summer Writing Program for high school students. And afterwards, one of the many brilliant and insightful questions the students posed to the panel was, what about writing are we most challenged by? Or in other words, what as a writer is our greatest fear? <coughs> of course, to this question there are many, many, many answers. Fear of beginnings, fear of audience, fear of logic, fear of revision, easy endings, fear of politics, fear of ethics, emotions, abstractions, apparitions, pacing, word choice, fear of truth. But one fear, it occurs to me, transcends genre, temperament, aesthetic. This fear is an unnameable fear. It is the fear of trying, trying hard, of actually putting pen to paper, forcing discipline, paying attention to the great idea, great theme, great image, working long and hard to generate fulfilling and believable and imaginative and lyric and poignant writing, going through revision, giving it to readers, accepting change, reading, rereading, re-re-re-reading, and somehow knowing it is good and still, still, still recognizing that there are parts that just aren't right. Sections that are ever so slightly flat, mundane, melodramatic, illogical, or neat. It is this fear, the fear of existing in a space so very, very close to right that can be the most terrifying. Of course, this isn't what we told the high school students. <laughs> we didn't want to scare them from the beginning. <laughs> but at today's 11s, we're happy to have Lon Otto, who will discuss the wonder and danger of these risks and how to recognize and what to do when you have patches of thin ice in your writing. Lon Otto has published two collections of stories, A Nest of Hooks and Cover Me. His work may be found in many magazines and anthologies, and he's a professor of English at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. So please welcome Lon Otto. Thanks, <clears throat> thanks Carol, and thanks for, thanks for coming out today. Um, I know that some of you are probably just putting off your homework for this afternoon. Uh, but whatever got you here, I appreciate it. I'm going to be talking uh, for a while, maybe a half an hour, and then we'll have a conversation, which in my experience is usually when these things, these elevenses, start to get interesting. I hope you'll be willing to share then your own experiences with this subject, both as readers and as writers. Uh, raise questions and correct some of my errors. Um, you'll see over there my, my sad excuse for a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, and I'm not sure why it's there even, but uh, it gives you something else to look at uh, and puzzle out along the way. When I was a kid, 12, 13 years old, my best friend's mother would say to him, when he was doing something she disapproved of, which was usually the case, she'd say, you're skating on thin ice, mister, meaning he was in peril of plunging into the freezing waters of her displeasure. At the time, it was the way she said, mister, 
that most impressed me. Mister, dripping with disdain for his puny manhood. I sometimes suspected that she included me in this disdain, though she never actually directed it at me, and I'm certain she included Roy's wayward father, and maybe all members of the male sex. And I can still hear her say it, Mister. Her tone somehow rhyming it with pipsqueak or dimwit or dipshit. Thin ice, however, is what this talk is about. I'm using the concept here not for wearing your pants too tight or ditching school or dating your receptionist, but for places in an otherwise solid piece of writing where we feel insecure, usually because there's not enough of something, not enough authority, not enough consistency, not enough motivation, not enough originality, not enough tension. A couple of years ago, I gave an 11s here called Burning Away Your Virtues which was about moments when a literary work rises temporarily to a higher level of achievement, when good writing becomes great. Moments when we become, for a little while, and usually for reasons that are difficult or impossible to recreate or control, better writers than we ordinarily are. This 11s is in some ways about the reverse of that. Am I doing that? I don't know. I don't know what that came from. Um, <coughs> I wouldn't touch a thing. Uh, okay. This in some this elevens is in some ways uh, about the reverse of that. Um, places where an otherwise solid literary work becomes shaky underfoot. That threw me off a little bit. That's static. Uh, weaker in some ways than the rest of the piece. I want to be clear about one thing. Avoiding literary thin ice is not a matter of following rules. Where I come from in Minnesota, the news media nag us every winter and fall and spring about the safety rules for lake ice. How many inches are needed to walk on it? How many for a snowmobile? How many for a car, for a truck? <coughs> and in Minnesota, we do like to drive our trucks out onto the ice. For literary thin ice, there's no simple calculation that will keep us safe. Nor do I even think that staying safe by avoiding thin ice is always the point. The consequences of literal thin ice can be fatal. And not just for the person who breaks through, also for would-be rescuers. My brother-in-law, an injury epidemiologist, all about percentages of risk, once declared to me that nobody should go out and try to rescue somebody who'd broken through the ice. It was just too dangerous. I answered that I'd heard you should use a ladder, slide it out on the ice to distribute your weight, and then crawl over it to the person who'd broken through. My brother-in-law thought about that for a moment and then said, sure, that would probably work. All right, I thought. He never agrees with me. And then he went on, while you go looking for a ladder, the guy drowns and nobody else gets hurt. <laughs> Literary thin ice isn't necessarily deadly. 
Most of the examples today are strikingly successful films and books, classics, bestsellers. Films such as Casablanca or North by Northwest, novels such as The Color Purple or Cold Mountain. Obviously, what I'm calling thin ice in them didn't lead to disaster. We should all suffer such a disaster as having written The Color Purple or Cold Mountain. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that under the right conditions, thin ice actually brings a kind of power to a literary work. I believe in taking risks in writing, and playing it safe can lead to dullness. Approaching literary thin ice, even venturing out onto it a ways maybe quite a long ways, might be exactly what we need to do sometimes. So this isn't about following safety rules. It's about paying attention to those cracking sounds and understanding what they mean, what they might mean. I think that recognizing literary thin ice is an important part of writing well. Once we recognize it, we decide whether it's damaging the piece of writing, and if so, employ various strategies for surviving it, not rules strategies for dealing with what we know in our hearts are weak places, places that jeopardize a work we care about. Right. So how do we recognize thin ice? What sort of thing are we talking about? I have a list over there. Once I got myself committed to this thin ice metaphor, which happened about the time when I sent in the proposal to do this talk, I realized that it could apply to almost anything going wrong with a piece of writing. And that's a problem for me, because you're all going to walk out of here by 12 o'clock, if not sooner, maybe a lot sooner, those of you who insist on sitting by the aisle. Um, and we all know that an hour doesn't give us enough time to even list all the things that can go wrong in writing. Carol, Carol made a start uh, in the introduction much less explore a solution or two. Also, as the poets among you probably know especially well, as a metaphor's tenor, that is what it's about, what it's trying to convey, as that starts to spread, the figurative vehicle starts to lose its spark. It gets all vague, and the, the word whatever sort of floats into our minds. <laughs> so I'm going to try to limit the concept of literary thin ice to a handful of things that frequently appear in otherwise excellent work. Conditions that usually involve some sort of insufficiency and that lend themselves to specific strategies of improvement. Let's start with the issue of insufficient authority. Write what you know has been a commandment of creative writing courses for so long that it's generated its own counter-commandment. Write what you don't know which is also starting to feel a little tired by now. Those truisms aside, unless we're writing the most limited kind of memoir, there are times when most of us writers feel we don't really know what we're talking about. And that's one of the situations when we hear those cracking sounds and are pretty sure we're skating on thin ice. Sometimes insufficient authority results in errors of fact, large or small. Even in fiction, maybe especially in fiction, this drives readers out of their minds. And not just in a historical fiction. Have an event happen at the intersection of two streets that actually run parallel to each other. And see if somebody who once lived in that city doesn't write you a scornful letter. Or come up after the reading and chew you out for the mistake. 
draw you a map. <laughs> Even if the incident itself involved space aliens or a talking cat. The authority problem sometimes manifests itself in thinness of particulars, too few physical details to give us a sense of the actual experience. Because we as writers don't really know how things look or sound or smell or feel in the situation we're writing about. We don't know how this character dresses or how this job is done. So we leave that out. Other times, it results in an abundance of particulars that we gather like little scholar squirrels. Details that might be 100% accurate, but come off as information rather than experience. I remember getting this feeling when reading Nettie's letters from Africa in Alice Walker's The Color Purple. In fact, I decided after a while, maybe the third or fourth of these letters, that this was a deliberate effect, that Nettie wasn't really in Africa at all. She was sitting in the 42nd Street Library in New York City doing research and stringing her sister along with a coincidence-filled fantasy of doing missionary work in Africa. Turns out I was wrong about that, but you get the idea. When John Updike's Couples was published quite a few years ago, a woman I know ridiculed the way Updike had a woman thinking about her sexual organs as complicated plumbing. I don't know if that was fair criticism or not, but certainly whenever we write about experiences that are not directly our own, to one degree or another we venture out on thin ice. The unconvincing plot point. This involves a weak link in the chain of causes and effects in a narrative that requires us to switch off our brains for a moment so the story can advance without our common sense objections stopping it in its tracks. For instance, there's what I think of as the, as the idiot moment in many thrillers after the protagonist realizes that a gang of horrible, relentless killers is after him. And not only after him, he's after his entire family. Instead of, say, calling the police, <laughs> they flee to their remote Rome mountain cabin. We're sure to be safe here. In Cormac McCarthy's The Crossing, I was with him as the boy set out on an epic journey to return a wolf to Mexico. But when he added an eagle to his entourage, I think that was thin ice. In Charles Frazier's Cold Mountain, there's, something, there's sometimes more thin ice than anything else in the narrative. Sometimes an unconvincing plot point is combined with an error in fact. Think about the great movie Casablanca and those letters of transit that are the key to everything, the letters that cynical Rick has and his noble romantic rival needs in order to carry on his work for the resistance, letters that supposedly allow anyone to travel at will in the middle of the war. Such letters of transit never existed, and if they had, they would obviously not have been honored by the Nazis for a minute. <laughs> So sometimes plot can be unconvincing, sometimes we do have characters do unconvincing things, uh, inconsistent things in order to uh, serve the purposes of the plot. A related kind of thin ice, very common in films, involves inconsistency of characterization that exists in order to facilitate the plot. For instance, in John Woo's Face Off, 
you have characters who are demonstrably deadly marksmen until you want to drag out a gun battle, in which case they can blast away at each other at close range with automatic weapons for hundreds and hundreds of rounds without anyone being touched. In Beautiful Land, a, a wonderful indie film that was um, just released this past year, set in Minnesota, there's a minister who is sometimes wonderfully humane and kind and humorous. And other times, he's a cold, mindlessly rigid bastard, depending not on, his not on his circumstances, but on whether the romance between the two leads needs to be facilitated or thwarted at a given point um, to keep the story moving. Insufficient tension. This category of thin ice has come and gone from this talk a number of times since it usually doesn't involve the kind of risk-taking that marks the other categories. And when it is a deliberate choice, it can be something certainly worth protecting. When not much is going on and not much seems to be at stake for the characters, it's very likely it might be necessary for establishing the framework of normality um, that sets off the impending conflict. But it also might be a stretch of thin ice. I'm thinking of the work of some of my students over the past year and some of my own writing that gets described as quiet. And I'm also thinking of the long philosophical disquisitions of Saul Bellow's characters who appear in those passages as little Saul Bellow stand-ins expressing his views on life. And finally, insufficient originality. I say finally, I mean that's finally in this talk. Um, as with insufficient tension, this sometimes permeates a piece of writing, in which case it's not a matter of thin ice anymore, it's just wide open water. But failure of originality also can occur within the context of an otherwise richly original narrative. A situation or scene or action or passage of dialogue or description that is either so familiar from dozens of movies, television shows, and books that it feels lifelessly generic, like those scenes of lovers playing, playfully throw, throwing snowballs or something at each other. Or a passage might be so close to something in one particular film or book that it feels plagiarized. I can still remember the horror I felt when rereading a Grace Paley story after many years I realized that I had directly, though unconsciously, ripped off a scene from it in one of my own early stories. And I knew I'd read her story before I'd read mine. I didn't know it was thin ice at the time. Now it's too late. All right. So what's the problem with literary thin ice? What's, what's meant by breaking through? Breaking through the ice, as I'm thinking about it, means losing your reader. Your reader being, first of all, yourself, who, believe me, can be lost long before a literary project is completed or abandoned, when we find ourselves writing like zombies, kind of literary undead. <laughs> and then your first trusted, your, your trusted first readers, and then perhaps editors or agents, and then if the book gets published, reviewers and booksellers, and the reading public. You can lose or win a reader in many ways. 
for many reasons, but I think that the most relevant to our topic today involve belief, first of all, and then interest. Belief, what Samuel Taylor Coleridge usefully called the willing suspension of disbelief, always operates within the universe of the individual work. It's genre conventions, it's subject matter, self-imposed rules. Believing what happens in a thriller or speculative fiction or an historical novel or realistic fiction or memoir mean very different things. And it's different as we move from book to book within a given genre. But it's always important, I think, that on some level we believe what we're reading. Being interested in and believing are obviously related to each other, but it's possible to fully accept the reality of something and just not care. <laughs> there are many ways in which a literary work can interest you, but I'll crudely lump the any. I think I'll stop doing this anatomizing at a certain point um, soon. Uh, there are many ways in which a literary work can interest us, but I'll crudely lump them into intellectual engagement and emotional engagement. Intellectually, we're curious about what happens next and how and why. In fiction, this is largely a matter of plot. Emotionally, we care in some ways about what happens. We feel in some way connected to people in the literary work. On, so that on some level, what happens to them is happening to us. Emotional engagement may involve animals and animate objects, alien species, as well as people. But if it's lost, the reader is lost, at least for the moment, and that moment might be all we have. So that's the risk posed by literary thin ice. The narrative breaks through, your reader drops out of sight, run back to the house, look for a ladder, call 911. <laughs> What else can we do? So I'll go into um, some of the ways of dealing with, with narrative thin eyes. First maybe is to go around it. This is often the simplest and most expedient way to deal with narrative thin eyes. If your character is a rock star and you aren't, and you don't seem to be able to write very convincingly or originally about a concert from his point of view, Ask yourself if you really need to include a performance in the story. Maybe he doesn't need to be a star, come to think of it. If your protagonist is a female firefighter and everything you write about extinguishing fires seems horribly cliched, ask yourself whether she might not be on vacation or off because of an injury or on strike or maybe it's just a slow day. Don't put too much weight on it. If a narrative doesn't have a central support beam resting on something implausible or inauthentic or inconsistent, it's much less likely to cause problems. This is what's so surprising about Casablanca, in which the letters of transit comprise an absolutely central plot point. So why doesn't that movie plunge through the thin ice of this ridiculous premise? Partly, as is often the case, because we don't want it to. We want the film to work. More importantly, and more practically, I think, it's because the real weight of the movie is somewhere else. It's on the love story, it's on the theme of patriotism and sacrifice 
and friendship. It's on the global conflict, the crazy world in which, etc., etc. Alfred Hitchcock invented a name for things like those letters of transit, and you probably know what it is. It's the MacGuffin, uh, sometimes spelled with an A and sometimes spelled without the A. An object that everybody's looking for and that drives the plot, but really is nothing or almost nothing in itself. It's just a kind of catalyst. If the movie examined the nature of those letters of transit, if it explored how Rick came to have them in the first place, hell, if we even were allowed to have a good look at them, too much weight would start bearing down on them and we'd all be in trouble. Third solution, get across it quickly. If I recall correctly, a snowmobile requires <coughs> six inches of ice to travel safely. Maybe it's four or eight, I've never really had to know. But up north, enterprising snowmobilers have discovered that not only can snowmobiles make it across much thinner ice if they're going fast enough, they can actually cross areas of open water hundreds of feet wide. <coughs> this applies to that idiot moment in thrillers, I think. The point at which any sane person would simply call the cops, but instead the character takes off for the woods or flees across the border. As long as that moment passes quickly, we don't really mind. We've paid for our ticket. We don't want the movie to end after 20 minutes. We know that interesting things are going to happen in that cabin or in Mexico, and we're willing to pass over an unexplained moment of stupidity in order to get there. Solution four is to make it thicker. Sometimes we simply have to put in the hard, slogging work of developing something thin into something sturdy enough to carry the weight it needs to bear. This is the Protestant work ethic solution. The only one my father would have endorsed, and he would have asked me, why did you leave that to number four? Make it thicker. Do research that gives you greater authority, particularly research of the rummaging around, unsystematic kind, which comes closer to experience than most scholarly research. It's more likely to yield results that feel experiential, unexpected. We're not looking for information here. We're looking for the texture of experience. We can incorporate a wider range of physical details, especially unexpected details. Figure out what it looks like, smells like, tastes like. <coughs> we can develop a character with sufficient richness that you either know why um, he or she does something, some, something uncharacteristic or figure out what the character really would do. You can address the thin ice, as in Casablanca, when the totally self-serving Sidney Greenstreet character helps the heroine, uh, he just says, I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> and somehow that helps. If the issue is originality, substitute some more surprising yet still coherent action or situation for one that has become a cliché or that reminds the reader, maybe reminds you of something uh, too strongly of another narrative. Fifth solution. Is that five? 
five, fifth solution. Make it thrilling. This has been a staple of filmmakers for a long time. It's practically a definition of Hollywood film. Alfred Hitchcock complained about those earthbound viewers he called the plausibles, who always objected to that which defied common sense. Hitchcock staged a chase scene across the face of Mount Rushmore in North by Northwest for no better reason than he'd always wanted to. And he thought it would be fun. It was, and it is. The ice doesn't break underneath it, unless maybe you're a diehard plausible, because it's so damn weird and exciting. It's harder to get away with this in literature, I think. I might be wrong about that. But I think that reading is so much more active of a process than movie going. We have to be very willing to collaborate with the author. We have to be very willing to go along in imagining the thrilling but implausible scene. Finally, change the laws of gravity. This last strategy involves the molecular structure of the narrative's universe, the physics that govern it, its aesthetic and psychological context. Some of the greatest books ever written contain passages that defy common sense, that break all the rules of sympathy, form, logic, you name it, and yet undeniably work. They're maybe not the most useful everyday models, but they do give us useful reminder not to take any of our principles of writing as absolute truth. Many kinds of genre fiction operate with conventions that replace our usual sense of reality. But I think it's true of literary fiction, too. Those letters from Africa in the color purple work at least partly because they follow 150 pages of letters to God. At this point, we understand that we're in a very special universe. Books like W.G. Siebold's Austerlitz or Don DeLillo's Underworld or almost anything by Thomas Pynchon get away with the most unpromising moves because of a kind of magic reversal of gravity. The best known examples of this sort of thing, I guess, are those categorized loosely as magical realism. Books like Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. I'd like to finish the monologue portion of this Elevenses with one of the most famous passages from 100 Years of Solitude, that most famous um, example of magical realism, um, an event which is central to it and which in most narratives would seem like thin ice indeed. However, both because of its context, first of all, and because of its rich particularity of detail and character seems to me as solid as rock. The central character in this passage is Remedios the Beauty, a young woman whose beauty, even her smell, drives men to self-destruction, but who is herself utterly indifferent to it and almost everything else that matters to most people. Uh, the second major character in this passage is Fernanda. She's uh, Remedios the Beauty's sister-in-law and rival in a lot of ways. Uh, some other characters mentioned are her grandfather, her aunt, her great-grandmother. Uh, passage uh, is, uh, I'm using to end the talk, follows seven pages dealing with Remedios the Beauty's strange habits and devastating, generally fatal effect on men. Uh, let's see. Oh, Brabant sheets are 
linens that are very expensive, imported from Europe, is set in Colombia. So that's what Brabant, you, you hear about Brabant sheets. Fernanda did not even make any attempt to understand her. When she saw Remedios the beauty dressed as a queen at the bloody carnival, she thought that she was an extraordinary creature. But when she saw her eating with her hands, incapable of giving an answer that was not a miracle of simple-mindedness, the only thing that she lamented was the fact that the idiots in the family lived so long. <laughs> in spite of the fact that Colonel Aureliano Buendia kept on believing and repeating that Remedios the beauty was in reality the most lucid being that he had ever known, and that she showed it at every moment with her startling ability to put things over on everyone, they let her go her own way. Remedios the beauty stayed there, wandering through the desert of solitude, bearing no cross on her back, maturing in her dreams without nightmares, her interminable baths, her unscheduled meals, her deep and prolonged silences that had no memory, until one afternoon in March, when Fernanda wanted to fold her Brabant sheets in the garden and ask the women in the house for help. She had just begun when Amaranta noticed that Remedios the Beauty was covered all over by an intense paleness. Don't you feel well? she asked her. Remedios the Beauty, who was clutching the sheet by the other end, gave a pitying smile. Quite the opposite, she said. I never felt better. She had just finished saying it when Fernanda felt a delicate wind of light pull the sheets out of her hands and open them up wide. Amaranta felt a mysterious trembling in the lace of her petticoats, and she tried to grasp the sheet so that she would not fall at the instant in which Remedios the Beauty began to rise. Ursula, almost blind at the time, was the only person who was sufficiently calm to identify the nature of that determined wind, and she left the sheets to the mercy of the light as she watched Remedios the Beauty waving goodbye in the midst of the flapping sheets that rose up with her, abandoning with her the environment of beetles and dahlias, and passing through the air with her as four o'clock in the afternoon came to an end. And they were lost forever with her in the upper atmosphere, where not even the highest flying birds of memory could reach her. The outsiders, of course, thought that Remedios the Beauty had finally succumbed to her irrevocable fate of a queen bee, and that her family was trying to save her honor with that tale of levitation. Fernanda, burning with envy, finally accepted the miracle. And for a long time, she kept on praying to God to send her back her sheets. <laughs> so that's Anzitha, uh, the monologue. So I'd like to have a conversation now. And uh, if you have questions, to, to ask those questions. And if you have examples of kinds of thin ice that, that you've encountered and, and maybe uh, survived in, in a particular way to, to, say what those, to say what those might be. When, what's on your mind at this point? Yes, in, in back. Sure. 
uh, not, like, not, I've never seen the street one, but there are these little annoyances, or sometimes even the sentences, like I've gotten used to um, sentences not having subjects and verbs anymore. And I'm a teacher, and I often see it like, yeah. um, in, you know, middle school literature, yeah. so. And it's okay, but yeah. I, I, it's nice that you yeah. It is astonishing how, um, and, and think of thin ice in this matter of, of, of things collapsing underneath. It's, it's really like that. Um, I remember reading a wonderful article a number of years ago about, about forgeries, art forgeries. And art dealers describe, or art experts, describe what happens to a painting that, say, they'd always regarded as a Rembrandt, for instance. And the, the art world had agreed with that, and it's hanging in major galleries. And then somebody does some research, notices something, and they realize it's a forgery. And the word that they use, or the phrase that they use to describe their feelings about their understanding of the painting is that it collapses. The painting collapses for them. Uh, it's the same painting, same materials, the same design, the same everything, but suddenly it becomes a very different thing. And, and it's not just that the value collapses. The painting itself collapses. They're, they start seeing things that simply weren't there when it was a Rembrandt, and now it's something different. And I, I think a similar kind of thing happens um, in fiction where, um, particularly, but maybe in other, uh, certainly in other forms of literature too, when when, there's, when you just get it wrong, you just get it wrong, and uh, it, it just collapses. It's, it's a strange phenomenon. And let me, let me tell you an example very quickly. Uh, well, let, let me, let's I'll, I'll hold this off. The, the example is about William Stafford, all right? So if we have time later on, we'll come back to that. Yes? Well, I was just going to ask you if you think if, if uh, uh, experts or, I mean, a curator convinced experts that a Rembrandt wasn't a Rembrandt, when in fact it was, if they would begin to see the oh, things, and, and how does that apply to writing? That's a fabulous question. And I don't know the answer, as, <laughs> as is the case with most fabulous questions. I don't know. That would, be a, that would be a wonderful test of what's going on neurologically as we relate to the, to the, work, of, to the work of art. Um, the theory would be that no, it would not. Although probably they would see some things that are different. They would be more skeptical, certainly. Um, I suppose a, an art expert would like to say no, no, it, uh, it would not. But I, I'd love to. I'd love to see that, that tested. Yes. You're, um, you're talking about the Grace Paley story. Yeah. And discovering. You know, that unconscious rewriting. Yeah. Had you published that story already, or were you still... Were you oh, I had, yes, years yeah. before. Yeah, I was in the first collection of stories. And when I was writing that book, and that was a long time ago, um, I was reading a lot of Grace Paley. I love Grace Paley. I loved her then, I love her now. Um, and so there was no question. I could not tell myself, well, it's just a coincidence. Couldn't be. It couldn't be. And, and I have to tell you that I've since, as I was thinking about this last night. I've since repressed what story it was and what passage it was. I know it was in a nest of hooks, um, but, uh, and I think I know what story it is, but uh, it was just a, it was just something that happened. It was a, maybe a paragraph or so 
but definitely that got stuck in my head and it became my own. It put down roots and suddenly I thought it was my own. Composers, musical composers, have a horrible problem with this. It's a tremendous challenge to a, um, a serious composer who take in, take in music all the time. It's just floating around on an elevator. Just, you, don't, you don't have to be um, conscious. You can't close your ears to things. And so to get a little bit of melody, a little um, bit of rhythm or phrasing caught in your head somewhere, uh, completely unaware. You can be asleep, I think, and have that happen. So they have, a, they have it harder than we do, I think, as writers. But, um, but no, I, I definitely had read it, and, I, and when I discovered this, it was long after I had published the, the thing. Couldn't do anything about it. And I don't, I don't know that I would have, but I'll bet I would have. If I had realized that, if, if after I had written that story, hadn't published it, at least hadn't published it in a book, and went back and read this story by Grace Paley and saw how I had pulled it. And it was, I suppose it was more the equivalent of a, of a little phrase of melody. It was that sort of thing. I think I would have changed it. I think I would have. You didn't give, you're not willing to give yourself a break since it was an unconscious act? Well, I am now because I can't do anything about it. But if I could do something about it, yeah, I think I, I, think I would. Um, but I, nothing depended on it. It wasn't like I can't write this story without this um, little um, passage of, as I remember, it's about a paragraph. Yeah, in back. I'm using some dialect, and I know I'm not getting it exactly right, but it feels important. Yeah. And I want to keep using it. Do you have any advice? Yeah, dialogue. Well, that's a whole that's a whole other subject, and uh, it's one that I'm I'm really interested in. I I published a little exercise about dialogue in a book uh, this past year. Uh, no, I, I said dialect. Dialect. Yeah. Ah, dialect related to dialogue, uh, <laughs> very tricky. What I'd suggest you do is you read a whole bunch of books that involve dialect and see what, what those authors, what solution they came up to, came up with. Um, it, it's, it's so hard in English because English is so much not a phonetically consistent language. Um, and so sometimes when we're writing in what we think of as a dialect, really, we're just changing spelling. We're not, we're not actually changing how people say things. To, to spell your, like, um, you're in trouble, buddy, and spell it Y-E-R reflects, I suppose, ignorance of spelling, but it's, it doesn't reflect any change of sound. So, um, so I don't know. It's a, it's, a big, it's a big thing. But uh, listen to it. Um, look, for, look for touchstones out in the world. I remember once telling somebody that uh, it was a class where we were reading Eudora Welty. No, we were reading, yeah, Eudora Welty. And, uh, and I had made the point that it's, it's best to not change, to not use weird spellings to reflect uh, dialect, say southern dialect. And uh, somebody told me, oh, Eudora Welty does it. And, I said, well, maybe she doesn't. So we started looking for, try to look for some examples. And what we found was that she almost never does it. 
that what she does is she relies on vocabulary, she relies on sentence structure, um, she relies on characters who are very individual in the way that they, that they talk, and we, and we get this sense of, of a southern dialect, but it's not being done in any very uh, mechanical, in any very mechanical way, so I guess I'd just suggest things like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, the little girl. I think it's called the little girl. Uh, oh, it's a, see, that's a, that's a story I'd say the whole, it's an, if, you, if you haven't read it, um, it, it's, it, it's a collection of stories by Grace Paley called Enormous Changes at the Last Minute. And I think the story is called The Little Girl. Is that the one you're talking about? Where uh, um, it's, it, it has a, a black man who is the narrator and is the first person narrator and he is telling us about what happened with this white girl that his roommate picked up in the park, brought back to the apartment. She was a runaway, I think it comes out, and ends up, she ends up horribly murdered. And it's a terrifically risky story to write. I just admire the hell out of Grace Paley for, for writing and publishing that story because it touches so many hot issues um, of identity and uh, understanding. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how she handles it exactly. I, I don't, I simply don't remember that. I never looked at that story, particularly focusing on the, the dialect, but it's, it has to be there because it's certainly we are, the whole story is told in this guy's voice. He's telling us the story and, um, so it's unavoidable, but uh, I simply, I really don't remember. I, I'll have to hunt up a copy. And, it just uh, struck me, though, what, when you say it's Christian authority, I've met Grace Taylor. She's a sweet little old Jewish lady. Yeah. How she knows about, that much about this country. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I think I can answer that, is that she's, she's lived among, she's lived among a variety of people all her life, and she, all her life, and she's heard people talking. But, um, but I know from, I, I live in a neighborhood that's, that's racially very mixed, and I face that story. I don't think I've ever written a story that's as risky as the little girl in terms of basically feeling like I could really be slaughtered for this. People could be very offended by this. This could seem very racist um, in some ways. And I don't think it is, but it certainly runs that risk. It certainly is, is out there. But, um, but that's, a, that's a great example of a story that I think if, if we would feel too cautious about going on thin ice, um, a lot of great literature would not be written. But, but in any case, I, I write about my neighborhood and the neighborhood where I've lived for the last 15, 16 years. And a lot of my neighbors, my friends, are black, and some of the characters are black. And, and so you, and different levels of, and, and some are Asian, and some are, are white, and people have a lot of different levels of education and background and so forth. And to try to get that right is, is a challenge. It's, and I, I tremble, on some level anyway, when I'm doing that. 
and uh, and I, I want somebody to to test it and say, does this sound like it's like writing about from the point of view of children? Very hard to do because it can sound like an adult talking in a little kid voice and change the vocabulary, do you change the pronunciation, do they drop their G's, and it all, it's very, it, it's very easy for it to, um, to go through, to sink through, very tricky. Interesting, interesting example. Yeah? You talked about you know, the different points when you talk about losing your reader and so yeah. your first reader or the yeah. agent and all the way out, yeah. out there. Going through the thin ice is really about you, what you've done, you don't get away with it. Right? Yeah. Now, the reader, you're using the term singularity, but it's not. And so when you can talk about about finding your reader, because there's such a variety of readers yeah. out there, and we're also looking across generations. Right. People who are reading less, yeah. who have less patience, and you know, so something that someone wrote in the 19th century, the sure. 20th century, the level of detail or whatever, you, you don't get away with it today with big readerships and so on. This is your thoughts and observations on those issues. Well, my, my main thought is that you're absolutely right, and it's in fact very complicated. It's maybe one reader at a time, but it's going to be a I think I let the first reader ultimately determine whether I think something is working or not. Um, myself, if I go back to something and I say, yes, it's working, no, this isn't, um, and a few trusted first readers, readers that you know get what you're doing. They're not just your dear friends and always make you feel good and, and stroke you when you need to be stroked, but that they're, they're honest, they understand what it is that you're doing. And that's about as far as I think usually you can go in terms of actually making changes. Um, I, once you get into publishing, you have an editor or an agent who's a kind of pushy agent, pushy in terms of revising something. Um, that's very problematic for me. And I think probably more damage is done at that point than, than good. This is my utterly unscientific opinion um, based on a handful, really, of circumstances that I know very well. That, because the problem with those readers, say an editor, um, who was thinking about marketing, who was thinking about um, all sorts of other things other than the integrity of the of the work. Uh, they're trying to guess what book buyers will want, will want to see. And it, it gets very, gets very tricky. And so, so I think, practically speaking, I guess what I'd recommend is that you stick rather close to the beginning of that chain of readers rather than project a reader, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, this demographic, this background, this level of education, will that reader understand this word, will that reader buy this convention, and so forth. I just think it's too hard. It's just not practical. So, so for me anyway, the advice I give is stay fairly close to 
yourself being trying to develop your own honesty, your own sense of what's working and what's not working, and then a few readers who um, you learn to rely on, terribly important. One of the best things that for many writers that come out of these workshops is that you find somebody who gets what you're doing and you get what that person is doing and you remain in, remain in contact sometimes for many, many years. Um, some people, some of you probably have good first readers sitting next to you, back home, but, um, but if you don't, I think we need them. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if this is a type of thin ice. It came up in a discussion in a workshop this weekend about is there a point where you violate your readers, you know, with the unspeakable that people write about, the things like will stay in your head the rest of your life after you read them? Yeah. Is there a point you, how do you handle that or you don't cross it? Is there, <laughs> I felt it more not with writing but with reading. Sometimes it's going, I don't want to sure. read it with me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't have a very good answer to that. So it's a really hard question. I have a friend who's a a Holocaust scholar. <laughs> she tells me stuff. She's an archivist, and she tells me stuff that she's learned about some character that she's following. She's writing right now about a um, a guy who was a, a communist and a prisoner, but whose job in concentration camp at Sachsenhausen um, was the executioner. And I can hardly stand to, to read the little snippets that she feels compelled to share with me in her, in her emails. And um, I don't know, but I, one thing I know for sure, I would not want there to be somebody who has the power to say, this can't be published because it will disturb people. I don't want anybody to have that power. That I know for sure. I think we can decide for ourselves because you're going to, in most cases, you're going to read what you write more often than anybody else in the world. You read it again and again and again, and even if it's published, you read it again and again and again. The, the process of publishing involves reading and rereading and rereading, so you better be able to stand it yourself. Um, and beyond that, I think, I don't think anybody can, can, I wouldn't trust anybody to make a pronouncement about what can and can't be done. There certainly are things that I wish I hadn't read, I suppose, that are caught in yeah. my head, but I absolutely would not want somebody to have prevented that from being published. But as a writer, you don't think we should be concerning ourselves that what we're doing to other people? Well, concern yourself, I guess. Be, be mindful of it. Um, certainly be mindful of specific harm you could do to somebody. People that you love, say, no. would be crushed. There's, there's certainly be mindful of that. But, I don't know. There's a lot of books. It's rare that anybody is forced to read a book. Uh, <laughs> freshman, freshman English classes, I suppose, do that, but they don't usually pick those sorts of things. Uh, I think readers are pretty tough. They can handle it. Um, I mean, we handle life. We handle experience. What is reality? And uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry about that too much. I don't think. Are there anything else? Somebody wondering about? Yeah. Are you going to tell yeah. the Stafford story? Oh, okay. I'll try to start quickly. Um, it's William Stafford, one of the best beloved poets um, of the 20th century. Um, 
One of his best beloved and well-known poems is um, Traveling Through the Dark, uh, which I meant to print out a copy of and, and didn't. Um, but it's about driving along a mountain road, coming across um, a dead deer, getting out to shove it off the road so that nobody else gets killed, and feeling the belly and realizing that the deer was pregnant and thinks about it for a second and realizes that the, the baby deer are still in there breathing, waiting, and goes ahead and pushes it over the side. And fabulous, moving, tremendous poem. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, a physician in, and author named uh, William Nolan pointed out that, first of all, the baby deer, the fawns, unborn fawns, were not alive in the Valley of the Mother. Could not be. It's a biological impossibility that they would still be alive, that they would survive for even a matter of um, a number of minutes after the mother was killed. And then he wanted to say, Stafford knew this, would have to have known this because of his experience in life. And yet, it says that in the poem, and, and the poem undeniably has tremendous power. And, um, and I've not, and, and so I think certainly that, that crosses into this area. And uh, I don't know what to make of it entirely, but it's, it interests me. And whether you can say, well, that's poetic license. I don't know who gave poets that license to, uh, to change things. Um, but it, it does certainly complicate our response to that poem as, as readers. Um, to put something in it that's, that's simply false, that the reader, if there are, I never, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a doctor, I, did, I never really thought about it. Once, once I thought about it, I said, yeah, they, they're not waiting. They're not in there waiting. Because a, a lot of the power of the moment is they're waiting, they're still alive, boom, he pushes them over. That's, that's why it gets us. Yeah? Well, I don't think I dislike the poem because of that. I don't think it falls apart for me, but it's more complicated and I don't know quite what to think about it. Uh, I really don't. I haven't, I haven't come to any final resting point as a reader as I think about that poem, which I encounter in anthologies all the time. It's, it's a fabulous poem. It's a wonderful, powerful poem, but contains this falsity in some way. I guess I think that probably it's okay. Now, that's my, but that's not a rational, that's not a particularly rational judgment. That's just what I feel. I think we're out of time now, and you've been very patient. Thanks so much for, for your contribution.